You're listening to the High on Life podcast, episode 78. How do you keep the weight off once you've lost it? This is part of my series, Your Questions Answered. Welcome to the High on Life podcast, where it's all about empowering you with the medicine and the mindset to healthfully lose weight and thrive beyond the scale. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha High. This podcast contains general educational information on weight loss and beyond. Remember that while I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. So be sure to seek medical support from a qualified health professional. Hello, my friends. So happy to be back with you this week. We are well into summer here in Ontario. And my parents are visiting from New Zealand, which is always amazing. They spend some time with us here every summer, which is such a treat for me and my family. And this is the time of year where we get to split our time between the city and our island cottage up north, which I recognize is such a huge privilege and we're so grateful for it. And I'm also figuring out how to juggle having my kids home and trying to work. So a little tidbit for you parents. One of the things I've recognized with my kids is they need to get out of the house like first thing in the morning. And I used to love like working in the morning and then spending time with them in the afternoon. But now I figured out it's much better if I get them out first thing and we go to the park, we go for a bike ride, we go for a run, they get their energy out, we spend some quality time, and then I start my work day a little bit later. It works so much better for our family. So I thought I'd give that to you if you have some flexibility and maybe that's something you can try as well. Tends to work out better. And parenting is always a learning experience. So I hope you are all having an amazing summer so far and really slowing down to enjoy the moments, which is also what I'm trying to do. Okay, let's chat. So this episode is part of my series, Your Questions Answered. And this was a questioner from a listener who said, how do you keep the weight off once you've lost it? And this is the question, right? This is the big question for everyone who wants to lose weight for the last time and not continue the diet hamster wheel most people understand like, I can lose weight. I just can't keep it off. So we're going to answer that question today. And I'm not going to get into the why of weight gain. Okay. Why weight regain is so common. It is a combination of factors. There's the physiologic side of there's hormonal and metabolic changes. And then there's the psychological side of things, which plays a big role as well. So I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm really going to focus on what you can do right? So what can you do the practical side once you have lost weight? What are the factors that have been proven in studies to help long-term maintainers? That's what we're going to talk about. So let me start by saying I loved I loved kind of researching for this question because I got to review a lot of data. There are lar- large clinical trials and registries looking at people who have lost a significant amount of weight and kept it off for one year, two years, three years, and well beyond. So a few of the sources of data for this, for the information I'm gathering today for you are the National Weight Control Registry, which was established, I believe, in 1994. And it's a huge registry where people can join and then offer up information of what has worked for them. And then they take the popular themes from that and they publish from that. There's also the German and Portuguese weight control registries, I believe, established in about 2009 and 2014, around there. And then there was also a study published in 2021 that was a qualitative analysis of over 6,000 
Weight Watchers participants who had lost over 50 pounds and maintained for, on average, more than three years. Okay, so let me just explain what a qualitative analysis is because it was actually really interesting. So quantitative studies are where they just look at numbers. So objective data, they might look at percentage weight loss, change in findings on blood work. Compared to a qualitative qualitative analysis is when they look at people's experiences of something. So they might look at what people say, common themes that people talk about, their thoughts, their feelings. It really captures more of like that personal side of research. And that's why I really thought that study was interesting. So many themes that came out of there that I'm going to talk about. And then there's also this Swedish obese subjects study, the SOS study that looked at weight maintenance after bariatric surgery. So these are just a few. There are many more. There are many more registries that have been collected around the world looking at people who've been able to successfully maintain that weight loss long term. Now, why did I give you the dates? I gave those dates to you very specifically. So I told you that the National Weight Control Registry was established in 1994. The German and Portuguese were 2009-2014, respectively. The Weight Watchers trial was first submitted in 2021. These dates are relevant because you will note that they kind of preceded the era of widely available anti-obesity medications. So I want to tell you that because there has been a big push within the obesity medicine community to almost say that long-term weight maintenance is impossible without medical intervention. Now, I am an advocate for using anti-obesity medications and bariatric surgery for the appropriate people who want them, who need them. But I don't think that the messaging should be that that's the only way. And I still, I do think that there are some people who may not necessarily want or cannot afford to be on lifelong medications that cost several hundreds of dollars a month. And so we need to be able to offer other options, right? I don't think it's empowering for people to say that your only solution is to be on lifelong medication. I think that it can be part of an, like a tool as part of a comprehensive plan, and it can be amazing. But I think telling someone that's the only way is very disempowering. Now, we all know that diets don't work, okay? Diets where you're just told, like, here's what you should eat, and then you're kind of shamed if you can't follow it, they don't equip you with the psychological tools for sustainable behavior change. And we do know that when behavior change is sustained, that can actually work. So the question is, how do you sustain the behavior change? And that's where medications are one tool for sustaining behavior change. And bariatric surgery is a tool for sustaining behavior change because of the changes in appetite and disinhibition towards food and cognitive restraint and hunger makes it easier to sustain behavior change. But psychological interventions also are effective in creating behavior change. And there are some people who really just need to be equipped with the right psychological tools and skills. And I was really happy because all of this was <laughs> what these studies showed, which is what I teach as well. And so this whole thing is just to say, I'm really happy that what I'm teaching is evidence-based. And I knew that, but I wanted to share that with you as well. So I sound like I'm tooting my own horn here, but really, I was just so excited to see all of the data that does support the behavior change is possible. And why do I get excited about that? Because I so believe in the ability to empower people to optimize health behaviors, to live their healthiest life. And yes, medications are important when you need to treat physiology, but there's so much more that we can offer. And the more is not telling someone what a 200 calorie snack is. The more is helping people to implement, right? 
It's always the how piece that people need. It's the implementation. And this is what the large scale studies demonstrated. So here are the recommendations. And I'm going to give you my personal spin on them. I'm going to interpret it, interpret them for you in my way. Some of this is it's taken from the evidence and then I'm adding in my thoughts as well. So you can take it and take what you want from it. So my the recommendations that came from these large studies kind of I grouped them into the psychological, dietary, physical activity, and then other behaviors like self-monitoring and celebrating progress. So let's go through each of those in turn and I'll break them down for you in terms of what can you do if you've lost weight and you want to maintain that weight long term. The Number one biggest recommendation from a psychological standpoint taken from the qualitative study of Weight Watchers participants. So remember, over 6,000 people who'd maintained a weight loss of greater than 50 pounds over three years plus. And they were asked, what is the one piece of advice that you would give someone else to help them succeed at long-term weight loss? And you know what they said? There were two things that they said, but the first one was perseverance, which encouraged never giving up, taking it day by day, using meetings, so their community, like the Weight Watchers community, to reset after difficult weeks and embracing the journey and the long-term goal. This is so consistent with, this is outlined in the Canadian Obesity Guidelines as well, as like one of the things that people need to develop is that sense of resilience in the face of setbacks, right? So what we teach, and my spin on this is, what do you need to do to develop that resilience that these people talk about of never giving up, taking it day by day? You have to drop all or nothing, right? And that's such a huge piece that people struggle with. And that has been created by diet culture, I believe, is the sense that you have to be perfect, have to stick to the diet perfectly. Otherwise, the diet's not going to work for you. And that's like so destructive because it doesn't allow room for human, humanness, humanity. <laughs> it doesn't allow room for you being human, right? And the fact that you can't be perfect. So you're just set up to fail. So by dropping all or nothing allows you to recognize that actually setbacks are part of the journey. And that's what a lot of the people when they were asked and they captured the words of these participants, they talked about how the journey really was about having successes and having setbacks and that being part of the normal path to maintaining your long-term weight loss. Resilience is this sense of like, you just keep on going, right? And one of the things that I think is really helpful with this, what I help my clients with is this idea of letting go of drama. And I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. In my experience, when people have setbacks, they create a whole lot of drama around that. So they, they have a setback, but then they make that setback mean a whole lot of stuff. So they make it mean, now I'm a failure. This is proof that nothing ever works. I can't do this. This is too hard. I might as well just keep eating everything. And it's all that drama that then causes them to engage in self-defeating behavior, self-sabotage. And if you can just drop the drama, you're like, yeah, you know what? Yesterday was not a great eating day or like my last meal was not a great eating meal or yeah, you know what? I probably didn't need to eat that entire sleeve of Oreos and let's keep moving. Let's keep on moving forward. If you drop the drama, you just make it really objective and you think about how do I move on from this? What can I learn from this? You're always moving forward, right? So we have an exercise inside the program called write it down and move on, which is setbacks are going to happen. Write it down figure out what you want to learn from it, and you keep going. That's it. You take the drama out of it. And that's going to create a lot more perseverance. And then the other point that they brought up is they said, use the Weight Watchers meetings to reset after difficult weeks. So I would just kind of extrapolate that to say, you need to have a community and you need to have some accountability because sometimes you can't see outside of your own drama and negativity, right? That's the reality. 
We all get caught up in our head. We got caught up in our story. We get caught up in our own drama. And you just need some outside perspective. You need support. You need encouragement from others who understand, right? Who aren't going to shame you, who aren't going to just tell you to like, don't worry about your diet. Like just eat, live a little. Like it's like that balance, right? You don't want people who are just going to facilitate the behaviors you're trying to move away from, but you also don't want people who are going to shame you when you have a setback. So it really is about finding that right community, which is why I love Best Weight. <laughs> I love our community. Okay. And then embracing the journey. So the people in this study talked about embracing the journey and the long-term goal. So here's my interpretation of it is you have to create a life you enjoy living, right? The opposite, which is dieting, is you create a painful dieting experience that you can't wait to stop so that you can go back to and get back to living, right? It's like you set your life on hold. You can't do it that way. You have to embrace the journey, meaning you have to actually be living your life while you're losing weight. And that doesn't mean that you only do the things that you currently enjoy doing either, right? So if you're like, well, I don't enjoy exercise, so I don't have to include that. That's not what I'm saying. I believe you can create enjoyment by really managing your brain, right? Because let's give the example of you're not someone who currently enjoys exercise. It's The problem is not exercise and the problem is not your body. The problem is inside your head, right? Between your ears. It's how you're thinking about it. It's the stories you've created about it. It's the I have to it's that exercise is punishment for overeating. It's that exercise is punishment for my body being a size like larger than I want. That story is going to create a really painful experience. It's going to make you not enjoy exercise as opposed to what a gift. I get to move my body. I get to go on this walk and enjoy nature. I get to go outside and breathe and take this time for myself. Totally different mindset, totally different narrative. It's going to give you a different experience. So embracing the journey part of that is what you're choosing to do. And then a huge part of it is how you're choosing to think about it. The second aspect of the psychological tools that are important for long-term weight maintenance is what the study describes as cognitive restraint. I talk about this a lot. You may have heard my podcast about the difference between restriction and restraint. I've now reframed my terminology. We don't call it restraint anymore because for some people that's negative. We call it empowered choice. But anyway, we're going to go with it. So restraint in my definition, and you can figure out what your own definition is, is to lovingly choose, choose to say no to ourselves when we are focused more on the long-term benefits and outcomes and goals over our short-term false pleasure and satisfaction. There will be a competition between you satisfying and indulging your pleasure in the moment and getting that hit of dopamine versus you creating your wellness and well-being and best health in the long run. Those two things will come into conflict. And so restraint is the ability to choose the long-term versus the short-term false pleasure, right? And it is different from restriction, which you may have heard me talk about. Restriction comes from the mindset of punishment and deprivation, and I can't eat that. Whereas restraint is that mindset of I could absolutely have this. It would feel good. Of course, I'm having a craving. That's totally normal. And I can still choose not to have it because I'm focused on the long term instead of the short term. So the ability to apply cognitive restraint. And yeah, that does require engagement mentally, which for some people at some times that can be tiring. But it's a practiced skill also, right? It's something that when you practice over, over time, it becomes more automatic. And that I'm going to talk about next. So the third in terms of psychological skills that they talked about was healthy coping skills and self-regulation. Now, 
Let me explain. They explain this concept super well in a systematic review that I read that was conducted by the University of Birmingham. And the systematic review, if you want to look it up, it's called Understanding the Challenge of Weight Loss Maintenance. It was published in 2017. And they described this phenomenon called psychological tension. And it's this tension of what's created by when you're trying to change behavior to achieve weight loss, there is a tension because you need to override existing habits. And there's this incompatibility, they describe, between your new behaviors and your past behaviors and fulfillment of your psychological needs. So let me break that down. If you're someone who used to use food to satisfy boredom or to like create pleasure for yourself or to get over stress, and now you're trying to not eat as much food, there's going to be some tension there. Because how do you resolve that when you used to use food and now you don't have like, what do you do, right? Like, what do you do when you're stressed now? That's what needs to be solved. So this systematic review, the researchers from the University of Birmingham say, that successful maintenance involves management or resolution of this tension. They framed it so well. And they said, this can be achieved through self-regulation, renewing motivation, managing external influences, changing habits, finding non-obesogenic methods for addressing needs, and potentially through change in self-concept. So let's break that down. Here's my interpretation of it. The healthy coping, the healthy coping skills and the self-regulation is when you face the urge to indulge in the old habits again and your old impulses, what do you do with that, right? So what are the skills that you have beyond just crossing your fingers and hoping that you won't go back to your old habits? Like, do you have something more powerful than the crossing your fingers strategy? What skills and tools can you rely on? Because a lot of that is going to be changing beliefs. They talk about that. Changing beliefs about your own behaviors, about your own identity, about how you show up for yourself. Let me give you an example. This week, I was coaching one of my clients on her fear of losing weight because she had this, she had created a whole identity around being overweight. And I think that's really common, right? There was a lot of actually head nodding in our coaching call when we were talking about this. And she wasn't sure how to relate to herself or others in a smaller body, right? So this fear was holding her back. And she self identified that this fear was causing her to self sabotage, right? She was engaging in self sabotaging behaviors. So It's such a good example of psychological tension. You have this desire, you want to lose weight, but you also have this fear of what weight loss might mean if you do not resolve that conflict, that psychological tension through a change in self-concept, it will be a barrier to successful long-term weight maintenance, right? You can all see that. So that's where I believe coaching is so helpful. Yeah, you can find a therapist who is skilled in this. I haven't found a whole lot of those. And that's why we created our program. It was like, we didn't know where to send people. When I was just practicing obesity medicine, we didn't have somewhere to send people who needed to work on the psychological and emotional side of how we relate to our bodies and food. And that's why I believe that coaching is like this beautiful blend of using different psychotherapeutic modalities. And so really working on changing beliefs and changing self-concept. Another thing that they talked about is creating automaticity. And automaticity is... Our brain likes to put things into autopilot, right? It's so much easier. It requires less cognitive functioning and like energy to get habits to be or get behaviors to become autopilot, which is a habit. But how do you create that over time? And so learning how to break that down and there are skills that you can practice to create automaticity is going to lead to better long-term weight maintenance. Let's see, what are the other ones? Hold on. Finding non-obesogenic methods for addressing needs. Okay, this is like a really fancy way of saying we need to find some better healthy coping skills, right? 
if our emotional needs are always met with food or with alcohol, these are going to result in long-term problems. If we are always using external things to satisfy emotional needs, video gaming, using social media, distraction strategies, overeating, overdrinking, overspending, right? All of these things, they generally don't create health for us. It's just reality, right? Like it's just, we just got to be honest with ourselves about this. And so what are non-obesogenic methods for addressing our needs? That's all the emotional like regulation skills that can be taught. And I believe just should be much more widely available. We should be teaching these things to our kids. How do you self-soothe without needing ice cream, right? Without needing another snack and some fish crackers. How do you feel better without some Dunkaroos or whatever it is? Okay, so that's the last one of the psychological skills that are going to help with long-term weight maintenance. And I honestly think, like, I know this is my own bias and everyone is going to have their own bias. I am so hugely biased towards the power, our internal power to make change and to transform our lives. I just think that there's so much untapped human potential and that when we learn these skills that are not a mystery, right? Like there's tons of studies on the psychology of behavior change and habit change, but we need to tap into those skills and medication can be an adjunct, but denying that we have tools and skills that can generate behavior change beyond medication, I think it is is a disservice to people. So my own bias, fully recognize it. You can decide how you feel about it. Okay. The second category for long-term weight loss maintainers was looking at dietary. And from the National Weight Control Registry, which you may recall was established in 1994, they found that 98% of registry participants report that they modified their food intake in some way to lose weight. Okay, what does that say to me? It does say to me that, yes, obesity is related to hormonal factors and metabolic disturbances and changes, but 98% of people who managed to maintain their weight long-term needed to change their diet in a little bit. So there is a place for just like personal ownership. It's not a shame thing. Really, I think we've tried so hard to move away from weight stigma and bias that we kind of throw personal responsibility under the bus. And I don't, I just don't believe in that. So 98% of people had to change their food intake in some way. And some of the biggest things that they did, 78% ate breakfast every day. So that's interesting because a lot of diet culture talks about intermittent fasting. And I do think that there's a subset of the population that's going to do intermittent fasting. It's going to work really well for them. But we can see from really large registries that 78% of people eat breakfast every day. What does that mean? I think that for some people, maybe people with obesity, because we know that sometimes that's associated with like more late night eating as well, that maybe intermittent fasting may not be the best solution if it sets you up for more late night eating. I don't know. Just a hypothesis. And that by eating breakfast, and I would throw in a high protein breakfast, that's going to help curb appetite, right? It's going to help satisfy hunger and nourish yourself and get you out of like a restriction mindset. All these things, which are going to help with the control of eating, which is a big part of managing weight. So what do we know about the dietary composition? Well, a few, I'm mixing findings from different studies. So I looked at the Swedish obese subjects study, and that was where they looked at long-term weight loss after bariatric surgery. And they found that the greatest long-term weight loss was found in people who favored protein over carbs and fat. 
I think that goes with what we know intuitively that you need, most of us need to be eating more protein for a number of reasons. Number one, the effects on appetite suppression and reducing hunger and cravings. Number two, because maintaining adequate protein is really important for maintaining lean muscle mass, and that's going to be helpful for your metabolism. You don't want to lose muscle mass when you're losing weight. You want to lose fat mass. So I think intuitively that makes sense. And it's been proven by like study after study. So high protein breakfast, eat breakfast every day. And there was also reducing caloric intake and food tracking. Now, the food tracking I put under a third category. So we talked about psychological, we talked about dietary. Let's talk about the third one, which is self-monitoring. Weight loss maintainers describe tracking food as an essential skill within their healthy lifestyle. There's also other forms of self-monitoring, like self-monitoring of activity, which is really popular now with all of the like Fitbit type things and Apple watches, closing rings. All of these things are just attempts at maintaining behavior change. Really, that's all it is, right? So it's a form of accountability, self-accountability. It's a form of maintaining motivation. It's a form of awareness and mindfulness and keeping food choices at top of mind because it's so easy to default into getting too busy, getting too focused on what is urgent with our day-to-day stressors as opposed to what is important in terms of maintaining health. So 75% of people in the National Weight Control Registry also weighed themselves at least once a week. Again, what is this for? Is it to use the scale to bash yourself? No, it's to use the scale just as one metric of, okay, where am I at? I think that people who are like, I hate self-monitoring, I hate tracking my food, probably are getting too obsessive about it and think that it needs to be perfect. And it's that's really stressful. Like, I would not want to do that myself of having to track every morsel of food and know exactly how many calories I was eating and how macros. And I think that just overcomplicates it. Self-monitoring or food tracking can be a really helpful tool when you just simplify it, right? It can be as simple as writing in a journal. I mean, I track so many things in my journal, right? Like I track the work that I do and I don't make it dramatic and like tell myself how this is such a terrible thing, but I track it because it keeps me aware and I have tick boxes. So it's the same thing. Like let's manage how we're thinking about it to change the experience. Because the whole purpose of it is just your own awareness. It's awareness of ourselves and how we're like, how we're, yeah, how we're maintaining those healthy habits. I think that, and one of the things we teach is that pre-planning is a part of self-monitoring, mainly because it engages that executive decision making so that you're making decisions ahead of time rather than making impulsive choices. So that's self-monitoring. Now, the fourth one is physical activity. In the National Weight Control Registry, 94% of people increased their physical activity and the most frequently reported form of activity was high-intensity interval training. No, (laughs) joking. Walking. So simple. No excuses. It's just walking, okay? They did a lot of it. So 90% exercised on average for one hour a day. So that is a pretty aggressive goal, 60 minutes every single day. But they also worked on reducing their sedentariness. So 62%, two-thirds of people watched less than 10 hours of TV per week. In my mind, that's still a lot. Like, I can't actually imagine watching 10 hours of TV a week. But for some people, that might be a nice goal to set for yourself, is to watch less than 10 hours of TV a week. And if you're like, I can't even imagine walking an hour a day, honestly, start with 10 minutes. That's the take-home. You don't have to be here yet, but it's as simple as you know what, I'm going to turn the TV off and go for a 10-minute walk and just get started. Just get started on the journey. And the last one 
was celebrating, I put it into this category, celebrating progress and non-scale victories. So they asked people, what were the biggest rewards for losing the weight and maintaining it? And they talked about improved confidence, less pain, improved mobility, improved fitness, improved body image, improved medical status, and affect. Affect meaning their mood, how they, their perception of life, how they experience life on a day-to-day. And they asked people about how they maintained their long-term motivation. And one of the biggest things they said was looking back at how far they had come, right? So my interpretation of that is you have to celebrate progress. You have to celebrate how far you've come and the non-scale victories rather than just focusing on how far you have to go, only making the scale your only measure of success, right? They looked at the improvements they were experiencing, looked at not wanting to go back to their previous states of ill health or body image. And that really, by, by reviewing that progress, they were able to maintain their ongoing actions moving forward. So these are all really practical things that you can work on. And just do you notice how none of it was like just buckling down and following the meal plan harder, right? Like that didn't come up in any of these recommendations because truthfully, it's not about just trying to follow the meal plan and crossing your fingers that this time it's going to work. And this time you're going to be able to follow keto or carnivore or whatever crazy diet it is or take enough of those keto pills for this to happen. There are true psychological skills and behavioral skills that equip you to produce long-term behavior change. And sometimes that includes changes in self-concept to facilitate that. Now, the last one I will say and I kind of started by introducing this, and I will close with introducing this, is that sometimes the anti-obesity medications are what can help with long-term weight maintenance after loss. These are tools. (laughs) You can probably hear there's like hesitation in my voice. If you're watching the YouTube video, I don't edit my YouTube videos. So if you ever want to see like the unedited version of me producing these podcasts, you can watch the YouTube video. Anti-obesity medications are a tool. I think that it's finding that middle ground where we don't swing too far to say that the only option for people is either surgery or medication. I think that we need to better equip people to optimize our lifestyle and really own our health behaviors and our self-care, not in a shaming way, but in an empowering way, because we know it's difficult for everyone. It is difficult for everyone. By default, we eat more and exercise less. That is our default human natural position. So what tools can we use to live our healthiest lifestyle in a very obesogenic environment that can be taught through skills and tools that go beyond dieting? And sometimes we need to use anti-obesity medication as well to address the physiologic components and to equip people or empower people to be able to create behavior change. So that's the place of balance. I hope this was helpful. There are ways for you to keep the weight off once you've lost it. Thank you so much to my listener for asking this question. And hey, If you need help with this, if you need help learning and practicing these skills and tools, that's what we do inside Best Weight. We create the community. We create the support and the accountability. We teach the skills. We practice them together. We fail together. We have setbacks and we learn to keep going. And we learn to develop that consistency, the sustainability and the resilience that's necessary for you to live your healthiest life. And sometimes we also use medical treatment, right? So we have a whole team of physicians across Canada who are able to provide that medical supervision as well. So I want you to reach out through my website, sashahighmd.com. Book a discovery call with me or my team. I would love to speak to you and make sure it's a really great fit. 
And I will talk to you again next week. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed listening to the High on Life podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, share, and review it on Apple Podcasts.